history, lecture number 70. This is Rabbi Blyweiss. We are discussing the Mesifsa Alayam and Rabbi Yochanan Reish Lokish. Rabbi Yochanan has an exceedingly difficult life. He suffers what's called Yisurin Shel Ahava. Rabbi Yochanan's teachers, Rabbi Yanai, have Ein Biyadenu. We don't, these things are not in our hands to understand the Kaddish Baruch Hu's ways. But it is a major area of discussion, and uh, Rabbi Yochanan figures prominently in a sugi on the subject in, in the first parak of Brachos, uh, in which there's so much to say that I can't summarize it. Wait, can you just say what the topic is? Just because yeah, I'm suffering concerned. in life, and how one deals with it. And how when he, he lost ten sons, and he carried around, this is hard to understand, and like all Agadita requires much more analysis than we have time to give it. So don't take this at just service value, but he carried around a tiny bone, tiny enough that it was not Vitame, didn't cause tuma, less than the size of a, of a kasa'ara, a little piece of barley, um, the, the bone of his youngest son. And when somebody would experience hardship, he would show it to them, not a nya nya experience, uh, really, the, his purpose was, that's the official terminology, it wasn't, to, it wasn't to show up the other people, it was to put other people's suffering in context. Sometimes when you understand that other people have tremendous service as well, it doesn't make your problems easier per se. Well, which is one possible effect. It gives you a broader perspective. That's right. Other people have service too. And one realizes more what we know in the Torah, certainly, that life has service. You can't be alive and not have gone through uh, suffering, difficulties. Everybody's got stuff going on. We put on a good face, and that facade itself makes the suffering harder because then we get the illusion that everything's great with everybody, and I'm the only one who's got problems, and that makes it worse. So he suffers what the Gemara, the different levels of suffering, the highest level is what the Gemara identifies as Yisri Chalava, which is a Kaddish Baruch who sends suffering to those people, not as a punishment, as these people are tzaddikim, but rather as a way, as a show of love, as a way of saying that this is, when you have this, I think I did mention this the other day too, I even made a reference to a Yeshua, that goes into death on this, um, that when a person has uh, suffering of love like that, it gives your neshama a much greater olam haba. Even if you're going to get a greater olam haba, but now you're going to have even exponentially greater olam haba. So he experiences these suffering that was from Hashem's love. It's just, that sounds like a little Christian-esque in that, that you have to suffer in this world to get the ultimate reward in the next world. Nobody said you had to suffer. No, but like the more suffering, the, the worse it is for you in this world, the better it'll be in the next world. Why can't it be like... Well, they do have this idea, but they got it from us. Yeah, but it's it's. I've always learned to, or I always thought that Judaism was. It's it's not about. It's not it, your actions in this world dictate what will happen in the next world. Absolutely. It's not. It's not. Oh, it's not your. But you don't confuse actions with circumstances. Yeah. Actions for sure. That's that's all our business. That's a kovadeshemayim chutzmiyor shemayim. We're supposed to be in charge of our behavior. Um, <clears throat> I'm talking about consequences or circumstances, things that befall us that are difficult. People have circumstances that are challenging and much more than just challenging. And that's what I'm talking about. And sometimes they experience Im- immense hardship and suffering in the world. And that just happens. And the way we understand that is it's from a Kaddish Baruch, but we don't really know what it's all about. And sometimes they're not Yisra and Shalabah. The Gemara there gives you certain guideposts if you know whether it is Yisra and Shalabah or not. Even so, at the end of the sugi, we're left a little bit unclear about how to interpret what happens to us. We know it's all for the best. That's Gamzul Latova. But, um, and, and the way we handle the Yisra themselves 
testifies to the quality of the neshama. That's where our action really counts. We know that a lot of people are crushed by life. And you can see it. You can see it with older people sometimes who walk around with that kind of bitter look on their face. And life just, you know, had, their, had its way with them. And they, they you know, feel really just... That's one manifestation. Sometimes jaded, cynical. Sometimes just, uh, sometimes insane. Uh, sometimes just uh, with little enthusiasm, little, little life left in them. You see people like that too. You see some young people like that too sometimes. Tragic. And so the Jewish way is to say, no, it's all from Hashem. And therefore my response is, okay, I'm going to keep going and pushing on enthusiastically, energetically. And that's how Rabbi Yochan, of course, did. Uh, thieves steal all of his money at one point. And the Yushalmi tells us, there's an interesting, intriguing statement, and I, I bring this in my shir on Eov, but since we're talking about Rabbi Yochanan, it's relevant now. Um, there are all kinds of statements about who Eov was and when he lived. And um, Eov is not clearly Jewish or not Jewish. It's not clear if he lived before Moshe, during Moshe, sometime during Baish Rishon, Shani, or later. I mean, he, it, it's really, he's wide open. And Rabbi Yochanan weighs in. He has some opinions over there in the Gemara. And he says that Eov is a really uh, intriguing, not, always, not, not at all lucid statement, not clear statement to us. He says he comes with the Olegola, those who came up from the exile, and his base medris was in Tiberia. Olegola, that implies he came back with the second, se- in, the, in the beginning of the second temple, he came up with the, uh, the Chivat Sion, coming back from Bavel, but then he, he, his base medris was in Tiberia. You, you history buffs, you should, you should realize something doesn't work out with that. Uh, get rid of the really in that sentence and, and you'd be accurate. It wasn't a thing. Who built Tiveria from scratch? Herod Antipas. And after, you know, after Chorban, and before Chorban Baisheni, but at the end of the Second Temple period. So the whole thing is full of anachronism. So one way of looking at it is that um, Eov is actually alive at all times, indeed. He is understood as, on some level, a mythic figure and every man kind of experience, figure who, it, who's suffering, we can actually read into ourselves. Who comes and has his base medrash in Tiberia? Why, it's Rabbi Yochanan himself. So in other words, it's almost like a self-reflexive idea. He reads himself into Eov, seeing the immense suffering that Eov endures as a mirror reflection of his own experience. Is a possible shot for what Rabbi Yochanan is, is, is trying to suggest about Eov. In fact, he has one of the most famous statements in the Gemara when he finished learning, say, for Eov, Eov, he said the following, and I'm going to quote it. It's actually, if I'm not mistaken, it's a popular modern song, but the words are better than a popular modern song can actually do justice to. The Hebrew is Sof Adam Lamus, Sof Behema Lishchita. The end of man is to die, the end of cattle is for slaughter. Uh, everything is to, uh, we're all standing in order to, the Misa, excuse me, the Misa, excuse me. And everything, you know the song? Everything, everybody is designated and, and ready and standing and waiting, waiting for death. Happy is the one who's grown up in Torah. Ooh, it's, it's, you know, after all this, I'll see you picture of Yochanan's life. I feel like I, you know, I internalize this and identify with this. Words, words to live by, really. Uh, oh, you got to get the last part. Fortunate is the one who's, who's raised for Torah, who toils in Torah. Because remember, we talked about this Marie Shlokish's principle that you can't just live in Torah. You can't just sit. 
sip your tea in bed over the Torah. You got to break your teeth over. You got if you you got to kill yourself in the tense of of, of Torah. Um, and he's amel the Torah, amelus the Torah. And by doing so, he does nachas ruach. He gives he gives ultimate pleasure to his creator. Right, that's what we're here for. And so that's, that's really, if you want to understand the Jewish view of suffering, it's anything, that's not the Christian view. The Christian view is a little more escapist. They just say, trust Yashka. Everything will work out. Our view is much more um, proactive. We say, no, no. Go, do, be. Take your channel, your suffering, into positive energy to keeping mitzvahs, to doing a great thing in your finite existence in this world. Rabbi Yochanan Rishlakish teach all areas of halacha. They teach agadata. They teach medrash. They're osik in maisibrashis. They learn the actual wonders of creation. They learn maisim rakava. We know like our great kabbalistic uh, forebears. As we said, nobody is mentioned more frequently, literally thousands of times in all of Shas, in Bavli, Yerushalmi, in the Zohar, than Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan adds a section that we say every morning to our Birkas Torah. He's so central to the Torah experience in Klal Yisrael. He adds the words, We say at the end of the first of the brachas, you should, and we, he davens, we daven to Hashem. We know we're supposed to learn Torah. We know that's the right thing to do. I don't know about you. Some of us have struggled in that portion, especially for the first few years in my own, in my own growth. Not an easy task. I, I wasn't natural at it. didn't go very smoothly. And um, so we daven, we have to daven to Hashem these words too. Please sweeten the words of Torah so that when I'm, when I'm doing the right thing, there's also a natural conducive quality there that I want to do the right thing. I want to enjoy what I'm doing. I want to I I get Yishmak from the Torah experience. The words of your Torah, which I know to be good for me, make them sweet in my mouth. And he, 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 he taught this, that we should learn Torah this way, we should spread Torah to others this way. Um, here are some highlights, impossible to reduce Rabbi Yochanan, but here are a few of his teachings that we have scattered throughout Shas and Megillah. Rabbi Yochanan teaches us <laughs> that it's also to look at the face of a Russia. And we actually, this is the halacha. If you know somebody to be a Russia, you should not look at him in the face. What defines like a real Russia? Good question. There are halachic um, characteristics. Uh, let's say a famous story in the modern era was um, after, after Ben-Gurion had had his famous meeting discussion, the, discussing the woman's draft in 1950, a big, big issue in 1952-53. So he had his famous meeting with the Chazonish, and he left, and he told his advisors, um, you know, they said, well, how was experience, and it's a famous meeting, I can tell the story at another time. When we get to the modern era, I'll, I'll certainly repeat the story. He said, uh, and he was struck that the Chazonish had very beautiful eyes. And uh, he said that, and his advisors heard it, and they didn't say anything to the Ben-Gurion, to the Ben-Gurion, but they sort of looked at one another, and they said, nice eyes and what they were thinking is what we know to be true um, nobody ever saw the Chazanish's eyes because if you saw the old pictures of the Chazanish he actually saw through these thick thick spectacles these big glasses he was he was very hard of uh, vision and um, he always had his glasses on and you could barely see his eyes through the, through the you know, multiple prescriptions. Uh, so how did Ben-Gurion see his eyes and what's the shot that I don't think Ben-Gurion ever knew um, when they had their meeting among other things Chazanish was simply makbir and halacha he made sure that before Ben-Gurion came in to take off his glasses because you're not allowed to look the halacha you're not allowed to look in the face of a Russia. And he didn't do it to insult him. In other words, I don't think DBG ever knew what happened, but technically he, he, was, he fit the get of a rush. Anybody who makes conscious institutionalized uh, steps against Torah, trying to dismantle Torah, as Ben-Gurion said, among many other famous quotes, I'll only, um, we'll, the Zionist mission will only be effective once, we've, um, once the last Jew of Meisharim takes off his shrimal. Why do you meet with the Chazanish? 
oh, they were discussing political issues. The female draft is a huge issue. He was trying to get the support of the Chazon Nation. Okay. Uh, it's another story. I, I, sure let me not, don't, don't get me there. We'll never get back to, to the, the Masifsa Aliyam. Wait, wait, wait. It's an interesting story. I think in the end <laughs> that there was success, but not immediately felt. Meaning the girls were not drafted. That's all being rediscussed now in these days that we're these these uh, tumultuous days that we're we're living through. But um, in any case, he teaches you're not supposed to look in the face of a Russia. It's one of the reasons why we can't look at any even depictions, even artistic depictions of Yashka, of the Virgin Mary, um, you know, and, 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 and the other Christian icons, because they technically, if they're anybody who's associated with idolatry or, uh, or causes others to worship idolatry, is certainly in the in the gather in the in the in the category of a Russia. Um, it's the opposite of his, of his own sitting by the gates of the mikveh, because anybody who looked at him would, of course, have had a um, would the, res, the residue of the tzadi would, as it were, rabah. So the residue of the rasha, since the face is the portal, it's the punim. Punim is where the all the, the soul turns to this world, and so you're getting when you're looking somebody in the face, you're getting an essence of their neshama. You don't want that essence, the, the rishus of that neshama, to rub off. Rabbi Yochanan teaches deny letamid chacham. It's disgraceful for Kamil Chacham to go out with tattered shoes or with stained garments, which is also brought down the halacha, Rambam Brizin and Hilchos Deos. Um, and it was striking because the Gidoli, all of the Jews in Eretz Israel were much poorer than those in Bavel. Bavel, they'd come into their own. And they were wealthier as a whole. And the Jews in general, and the Gidolim in particular, were very poor. But they um, still tried to make sure as much as they could to keep some appearances up within their means. I, these things, I guess, are subjective. But there is such an idea uh, that you should, you should try to look put together. As you may not realize it, but um, you'll go on in your lives to do whatever you do. You'll come back after this experience a year or two or five and you will... Um, you're going to be looked at differently. And so the way you dress and the way you look and even like these little details of you know, how you carry yourself will be read by people and you should do Kiddush Hashem. You should look well put together. You know, nothing fancy, but... Uh, that's the, that's the principle. He teaches in the Gemara Yuma that a, the world exists for a single tzaddik. He bases this on a Pesach in Mishlei, tzaddik yisod olam. A tzaddik is the foundation of the world. And he expresses an idea that we see elsewhere too, that um, um, it's not a numbers game by us, that if you become a tzaddik, uh, the world could exist for you too. You, you, you can live that kind of meta-consequential life. And people then, you know, say, but come on, in the big world that we're living in today, you know, we don't feel like a cog in some kind of big system. Uh, the little man in, in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times is just the, you know, part of the assembly line in the factory. What difference could any little person possibly make? And the answer, of course, to the kasha is, right, that is indeed how most of the years, most of the world's some 8 billion people think that they are completely inconsequential and therefore they write themselves off. So those lucky few who actually, who actually don't write themselves off and strive for real righteousness actually become the Isota of the alum. The, uh, in Sota, he teaches Kashim Lezavgan Kikriyas Yamsuf. The hardest thing in the world since the, uh, since the splitting of the Red Sea is making zivugim, making uh, couples, making shiduchim um, between men and women. And, uh, and he teaches this principle that it's not an easy thing to find your b'sheret. Uh, in Psachim, he tells us that three people inherit Olam Haba. One person, the one who lives in Eretz Yisrael, which maybe, maybe you don't realize it this year, you're all doing that, you're all fulfilling that mitzvah, by, at least by most authorities, um, even if you don't intend to stay, but uh, there, is, there is a big Zachim being here. Um, two, one who raises his sons for Torah. And three, 
uh, one who makes sure to leave wine, enough wine for Kiddush, and then again for Havdalah. What's the underlying principle behind all of these qualities? Ezu Chacham, you know this principle in Chazal, it's not, it's not the mission Birkei Avos I'm referring to. Who's a wise man? You ever hear this? That's a, that's that's Avos that I was not referring to, but yeah, you're right. That is that's it. No, and, and that's that's Ezu Ashir. That's that's who's that's who's wealthy. Ezu uh, Chacham in Pirkei Avos is Alomim um, Mikoladam, one who learns from every person. This is a different Ezu Chacham. Haroe es Hanolad. You ever heard this one? Somebody who sees what's born, but but more broadly, more metaphorically, the long term ramifications of your actions. If you look into the future, Sof Maaseh Bemachshavat Chila. We say in, in, in Dodi, in the end, your action should be done with lots of forethought. Don't just act spontaneously or impulsively in life. And if you think about it, you know, one who lives in Eretz Israel and consciously moves here and makes it, you know, somehow, you know, does what he can to plan for such a thing. Somebody who raises his sons for Torah, somebody who, had, who lives his life with a kind of forethought of, oh, if we drink all the wine now, we're not going to have enough left for Havdalah. So that's a person who's always conscious of the future, and therefore, Mida Kenegid Mida, Kaddish Baruch rewards us with the way we treat his world if we behave in such a way, so he allows us to have the ultimate future, which is, of course, uh, with, with the reward, they inherit Olam Haba, these three kind of personality types. You want to say something? Yeah, just, how, how does, uh, I, I understand the last two, because by uh, raising uh, your son in Torah, you save the next generation, and then by keeping wine, you're thinking about the future, but how does living in uh, Eretz Yisrael oh. um, Eretz Yisrael we learned from the grand Rebbe of Rabbi Yochanan from Bishim Bar Yochai is one of the three things acquired through suffering um, and through all through most many of these generations and certainly in our days it's not something that's automatic and it's not something that necessarily people stick with there are alternatives so the ability to stay here and to stick it out and to endure hardships because most people do have hardships in Eretz Yisrael relative to themselves, I mean, Kaddish Baruch Hu always um, calibrates it to the individual. Some, for one, pers- one person's hardship, for another person would be nothing. But most people have, have, have endure more by living here, economically, socially, religiously, whatever it is. People, people struggle here, but if you stick it out with the long-term vision that this is our homeland, and this is where we all belong, and eventually we're all coming here. And we're going to come here underground in the grave, or we're going to come here in life or in two minutes. So if you have that kind of vision, that's a chacham. Who's Roa Esenolad? Uh, the last bit that I'm going to teach, I'm going to share from Rabbi Yochanan. Um, he teaches that a person who walks Dalad Amos in Eretz Yisrael is also a Ben Olam Haba. Um, it's based on this very famous Gemara in, in, in Subos, based on this idea a person who walks Dalad Amos four cubits. A lot of things, it seems like for me, like I'm going to Olam Haba ten times, I'm going to hell. I know, I know. It's hard to first attack that. Do a lot of the former and try to avoid the latter. Is the best bet I can I can tell you. I don't know how we're, we're not supposed to you know factor all these things in. Um, based on this, the Magen Abraham brings an opinion that a person who walks Dalad Amos is indeed Makayim in the midst of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael and, and actually officially lives here. Um, Reish Lakish, Reish Lakish, his job in the base Medrash. We have lots of great agadah that talks about this. Rabbi Yochanan would say over the main shear, but often it was hard and went over people's heads. So Reish Lakish, as his Tommy Chaver, would say over the Chazara shear. He would give the debriefing and answer questions, uh, as it were. Uh, that was called, the, the Gemara says, he was Messiah Mesifsa Diyoma. He finished the teaching of the, of the day that Rabbi Yochanan gave over, but he was certainly Gadol Hador. Uh, he was his own, he was, and he is by far, he is the second most mentioned 
of all figures in Shas, and there's also nobody who comes close. <laughs> Meaning Rabbi Yochan is far away number one, and Reish Lakish is far away number two, and and uh, the, the others the others trail by a long distance. Um, so then a little bit of Reish Lakish's teachings, uh, a few of the of his teachings in Sukkah, he teaches Yitzro Shel Adam Misgaberla Yom. If you want to know the for me, at least, the main Gemaras are the two very important Gemaras to understand the Sahara. You'll look up the fifth chapter of Sukkah, where I'm, I'm quoting that now, and also the end of the first chapter of, or near the end of the first chapter of Kiddushin, and your life will change. You will have a better um, understanding, you'll have more insight into how to deal with your own Sahara. So he's, he points out that the um, Yetzer, the evil inclination of a person, overwhelms him. How often? Every single day of his life. Never leaves us alone. Umivakesh and wants to kill us. Nothing less. He wants us to die. Eat, drink, and be merry so I can have you for dinner. That's what the Yitzhahar is saying. He wants, um, he's responsible for all of our self-destructive behavior. He hates, hates with a passion that you'd be learning Torah and making something of yourself, doing mitzvahs, working on your midos. He's miserable. He's the force when you sit down finally and it's time for Shear to start and everybody opens up their books, that's it, you got it. The first person to check your classes, you'll know, Aaron was with me, you know, the, you know this word. Ilan, 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 get this one. Notice in your, in, your, in, your, in your classes, when the Rebbe gets down to business, one person at least will yawn. It's the Pavlovian reflex. Okay, now we're gonna get serious. Oh, I need more coffee. That's the Itzahara. He can't stand that you're getting serious. And we got a, lot, we got a thousand such examples. So Reish Lakish identifies this. It's overwhelming us every day and wants to kill us. He wants quasi-death for us. The Ilmale HaKadosh Baruch Hu She'ozolo. Were it not for HaKadosh Baruch Hu who helps him, Enem Yecholo. Without HaKadosh Baruch Hu's help, we would have no chance against him. Um, a parallel Gemara, not Reish Lakish per se, but it's a, it's a corollary teaching and Kiddushin is. Um, and that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us Taira Tavlin. Torah is the antidote. It's the spice of life. Without Torah, we'd have no chance against the Eight Sahara. With Torah, we can put up a good fight. No guarantees. Um, Reish Lakish teaches, here's one that you've heard out of my mouth many times this year, Tav Lemetav Tandu Melemetav Armelu. Talking about something incredibly deep and relevant about men and women. Uh, women would rather be in just married, even if that means in a bad marriage, but married than to be not married at all. Women as their nature, the citrus, the nukfa, in the world are relationally oriented. They do better in relationships. And, uh, and, and that's, that's a basic um, principle that Rish Lakish teaches. Both Rish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan teach us, teach us that in, in the Gemara and Chagiga, when, there's a, when there is a base hamikdash, the mizbeach is mechaper. Because we have an altar, and the altar uh, gives us kapara, gives us, gives us atonement for our, for our sins. And he says, nowadays we're not the base of Mikdash, so what do we have instead? We have um, the Shulchan, the table that we eat on or that we learn Torah on is, mechaber, is Mechaper on a person. And so the table predominantly that we eat on, you should see as your own person is Beach and do lots of mitzvahs with it. Always bring in guests, always be generous, always make sure that there are words of Torah heard around your table, put salt on there, that's why there's an obligation, halacha that we, um, whenever we have a bread meal at least, we put salt on the table because uh, korban can't be complete without salt and, and many other important halachas uh, that, we, that we, we have our base of mikdash even if we don't. Um, 
Reish Lakish teaches in another Gemara Chagiga Haosik b'Torah Belaila. If somebody is immersed in Torah at night, particularly Hakadosh Baruch Hu Moshe Chalav Chut Shel Chesed Biyom, Hakadosh Baruch Hu brings out a special uh, quality of generous kindness in the daytime. Um, nighttime. This is one of the sources for nighttime being the primary time, prime time, as it were, for <laughs> Torah learning. Your neshama is more receptive to it at night. Do you know this? Make your night seder strong. Nighttime is big, and it goes in. We're more spiritual at night. There's a simple shot that makes sense to me. Um, in the daytime, when the sun's up, we're a little bit more full of ourselves. We feel stable and secure, and irrationally so. But at nighttime, we have a healthy do- dose of fragility. We feel kind of puny under the big sky with the cold and the darkness and so on. And humility always brings out a greater spirituality, and you learn better that way. Um, finally, Rish Lakish, for me at least, for my survey in Tainis, he tells us that um, on every Shabbos, every person is given what's called a Neshama Yaseira. These are famous Gemaras. I'm just yeah. curious. These, some of these must sound familiar, no? That, that one's for sure. So Neshama Yaseira. You get, you get a special soul, an added soul that a person has. Um, I think a lot of people don't clue into it. They have no idea that that's happening, but it's there. You just have to discover it. And that Neshama Yisera is taken from us on Motzei Shabbos. We, we say in our tefillah, we say Shabbos Vayinafash. We, we rest and we're sold. There's no translation of that verb. Vayinafash. We become a soul because we get a Neshama Yisera. And what do we do to extend that Neshama into the week, for example? What's the halacha that we do? Mm-hmm. Abdallah, we specifically... You said, you said, you said I think, no? We smell the besamin. Because the besamin, the smell is the most spiritual of the five senses. Reach is ruchnius. It's the smell, and we, we enhance the smell as a way of drawing out the neshama a little bit longer. Um, during this period, I have to give an honorable mention to certain figures that are referred to in the Gemara, but they're quite central. They come up all the time. They're called the nechuse. Uh, for based on the, uh, the expression, the Aramaic expression, nechuse hayam, those who go down to the sea, the sea bearers, travelers, in other words. These travelers, I've mentioned them before, went back and forth. Uh, if you look at your maps, any of the maps around still? Oh, we've got a couple other tables. Good. Fantastic. Okay. So if you look at the maps, you can see by way of the Fertile Crescent. Do you remember the Fertile Crescent? It's... it's Mark, let me just let me hold, let me hold yours up. So you can see it on your own maps. Right. So look. Right. If you cut a line from Eretz Yisrael due east and go across <laughs> today's Jordan, across the Arabian Desert to uh, Babylon, you would die of starvation, of heat. So they never did. They went through the lush, fertile valley of the Fertile Crescent. Um, that journey took approximately 11 days by foot, sometimes longer if you had hardship. Uh, and these tzaddikim would go back and forth. Some of them had business. Some of them would do it as part of their, uh, they were merchants, they were salesmen. Uh, but most of them went out of mysterious nefesh, out of self-sacrifice, to be able to bring the Torah back and forth between Eretz Yisrael and Bavel, there was in these early generations tremendous, um, tremendous confluence, uh, uh, mutual influence, um, a synergy, I guess is the term in the modern world, that, that, that took place of the combined Torahs. And especially as, we, as, as in, in these coming years, the persecution in Eretz Yisrael is going to increase. It's going to be very hard for the Jews to manage here. Um, and there's increasing concern over how we're going to preserve Tyra, suddenly these messengers had a renewed um, 
it, relevance of preserving the great Torah that was being learned, especially in the Mesif Salayam in Tiveria, uh, and bringing it over to Bavel. And you can see it's clear, both in the Bavli and in the Yushalmi, Yushalmi we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, both in, in both of these major works, you can see the influence of both communities. There's this clear interplay, and they didn't have emails or fax machines. Was clearly, there was, there was a, a lot of back and forth. There was also concern that there shouldn't be two different Torahs, since there was a great, there were great <laughs> center of Torah in both places. They were, they were indeed very integrated. Um, Ula Nechusa, or just Ula, who we've met in Argamara in the first parak of Makos already, uh, was, was certainly a major one of these people, but other figures were Rabba Barchana, Rabin, Ravdimi, Constantly, hey, are you familiar with this expression in the Gemara? Ki'ata Ravdimi, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Ki'ata Rabin, Amar Rish Lakish. Constantly bringing Torah back. No, yeah. When they came, they said like this. That means, oh, he just came back from his visit, and he, I had this image, Ki'ata Ravdimi. And he's coming from, um, you know, Eretz Yisrael to Bavel, and it's just like dad coming home from a trip, and all the kids gather around and say, what'd you get me, a lollipop? So in this case, they all gathered around Ravdimi, and they said, what'd you get me, a Chiddush from Rish Lakish? Everybody, he, he brought the goodies, brought his knapsack of goodies, uh, and 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 they came to they came they came back. Um, there was also Rabba Bar Barchana, not to be confused with the former one, uh, who uh, who continued this process. Um, eventually, the central will move to Bavel, and and the, the, there will be less need to go back and forth. Um, and the journey, anyway, back to Ma'arava to Eretz Yisrael is going to become too perilous. Um, that's the main route of traffic for Talmud Chachamim, but take out the maps just one more time for a second. Um, there are Jews are other places, and there's a need to transfer the Torah. So, for example, there's a, an Amora by the name of Rav Acha from Kartigna, which is in North Africa, and there was already a Jewish community in North Africa, and he's mentioned, for example, uh, going back and forth and bringing some of the Torah to the, and other people also to the respective diaspora homes. Um, Ula, just a comment on Ula. Ula went back and forth. Moser Nefesh for Klal Yisrael. And we learned in the, in both in the Gemara and Megillah talks about this and also in uh, the Yushalmi and Kilayim. Um, he, like any good Jew, of course, intended to live out his last years in Eretz Yisrael and, of course, to die in Eretz Yisrael. But one trip to Bavel was one trip too many and he fell sick. And as he was dying, he said, no, this was not the plan. I meant to be there, not here. But of course, he was there out of Messiris Nefesh. Of course, he got credit in Schar, um, and he dies there. And um, they bring his body for burial in Tiveria. <coughs> but when, um, but when, 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 they, when they try to con- console him on his deathbed, he says, it's still not the same. It's not the same, uh, he uses a metaphor, the one who, is, who goes out from his mother's, uh, mother's embrace versus somebody who goes out from the embrace of a, non, of, of, of a foreign woman, not his mother. In other words, in other words uh, I should go out in the embrace of my mother of Eretz Yisrael. That should be the way the neshama departs the, the, the goof. Um, when his coffin arrives for burial in Tiberia, uh, the Gadol Rebbe Lazar ben Pedas sees Ula's coffin arriving in Tiberia and he comments Ein doma kolotaso kolotaso la he says it's true he's being buried here but it's not the same being absorbed in, in um, afterlife after death already than being absorbed during lifetime better to die in Eretz Yisrael than to be buried in Eretz Yisrael is the punchline um, 
and it's a whole, I have a whole file on this whole sugi about um, is it okay to bring your body for burial as many Jews did throughout history. What do the post have to say? It's a big, big machlokas. Some say it's inappropriate. Live in Eretz Yisrael. Don't just, don't just have your uh, descendants schlep your body here. Uh, what's that? Right. As I said, it's a big sugi. For big tzaddikim, it's maybe different. <laughs> And it's not just Yaakov and Yosef, all the Shvatim are buried in Eretz Yisrael. They all, they all came up with Yosef. Now this is, of course, during this period, we're starting this process that at the time, maybe they weren't thinking of it in, in so many words, but we're now at the beginning of this huge venture that's called the Gemara. The Gemara is now very much underway. And we've met the major players. We've been to Bavel. We saw Rav in Sura and Shmuel in Naharda. We are now in the Mesif Salayam in, in Tiveria. Um, and they see that the Mishnah is not going to suffice. The Golos seems to go on without any, any uh, indication that it's going to come to a, a conclusion soon. And then they start perceiving something that's even more nerve-wracking and, and, and cause for tremendous concern. Increasingly, they don't get it. Rebbe's try to say over sure in the base Medrash, and the students with sincerity and hard work say, <laughs> I didn't get it, Rebbe. Could you say it again? And the Rebbe's have to repeat themselves more than they had to in the past. And they're starting to perceive what's maybe going to be a new reality. They're not going to get this. And if we don't put it in, into some kind of clear, concise, written format, Torah <laughs> indeed may be lost. So they start now to take the Mishnayos and the many Baraisos we've already seen have been recorded and to expound upon them. And it's in a preliminary basis. It's not at all the form that we know of as the Gemara, but this process now is well underway of explicating the Mishnayos and the Baraisos. It involves lots of pilpul, which is heavy analysis. There's uh, the whole nature of the discourse is what's called shakla, vitaria, back and forth, like the flow of our Gemaras that, that we're familiar with, we're getting more familiar with as we learn on Gemara, they would have to figure out, because the Mishnah sometimes is so brief, that it's such a great job of getting it all down in the shortest possible sp- um, space, that now they got a problem, I've said this over in Gemara here before, now they have the opposite problem, they did such a great job of getting it down with brevity, that they don't always get it, and now they've got to unpack it and elucidate it for future generations. And sometimes they will take a tradition and say, Minale, Minayin, how does he know this? And sometimes they'll find a pasuk with a clear-cut derivation. Sometimes it'll be a tradition like a halacha Moshe Misenai, where they have a well-founded tradition they can trace back all the way to Moshe Har Sinai. And sometimes they don't have either of those former ideas, which are both authoritative. They rely on a simple svara, reason. And reason, if it comes from a, an Amora, they, this generation still, these generations still have Ruach HaKodesh, and if you don't have a Pasuk or a tradition, Svara can be the next best possibility. <coughs> and this is, this is what's going on and taking place, meaning they're not just sitting around learning, they're, they're involved in this immense project that eventually will manifest itself in the Gemara. They are cautious not to innovate, as much as they can. And the last story, the, uh, the grand finale to the lives of Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish will be centered around this exact issue. They are very wary of innovating because their job is to preserve the tradition. We were given a complete Torah at Harsinai, both written and oral. 
And innovation, whereas maybe in the, I don't know, the world of commerce or, te- or, or, or technology might be seen as a positive thing, but by us, we're trying to keep Hashem's word. And if we innovate, that means we're diluting it with human ideas. That's not a good thing. They're very cautious about innovating. Um, they rigorously refine the learning until they either achieve what they believe to be emes, and often they come out and say, this is the psak, halacha is like this, or ultimately they conclude with an elegant little teku, teku, which happened to be a whole long discussion because it's the, also at the end of the first parak of Makos that we, we find a teku, teku, which is an abbreviation for tishbi yitaretz, Kushios Uvayos. The Tishbi, Eliyahu Anavi Tishbi, who will come back at the end of days, a harbinger of the final Messiah, and he will explain, he will elucidate Mitarets, he'll give it Terutz, for all the Kushios, all those unanswered Kashis, Ubayos, and all the questions that were unresolved. And that was the nature of the intellectual honesty of these generations. Either they'd get MS or they would just say, I don't know. They were not willing to compromise. In this atmosphere, of course, there's increasing machlokis because they don't have a uniform understanding on, uh, of, of everything. Uh, and there's understanding, there's a need to set what's called a gemara brura. That's the, uh, that's the phrase of Rav Shri Gaon who writes about this period. Rav Shri Gaon wrote, wrote one of the major histories. He was from the Gaonic period. And he describes a lot of this in detail. He says there's a need for a clear Gemara. That is our Gemara. That's why it's the most important text. It's really, it's, it's everything. It's, it, it contains the Chumash. It contains the Torah too. Without the Gemara, you don't know what the Torah is. We have no way of reading the Torah without, I mean, you know, we, today we open up Torah because we have Rashi's guidance. Right? But without Rashi's only Rashi with the Gemara. Rashi never makes anything up himself. It's all, it's, 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 one, one definition I've given for, for Rashi is it's Gemara's greatest hits, which is not bad as far as definitions go. It's, it, it, there's something to that idea, but you know, if we don't have our Gemara, we're totally lost in anything. We don't have Jewish philosophy, we don't have Jewish halacha, we have nothing without the Gemara. So, I mean, to clarify this, and that's this project, we find, uh, just to give you a sense of how much ignorance how increasingly widespread the ignorance is. A couple of stories from written the Midbar Rabbah. In these days, up in Sor, which is up on the, uh, today it's in Lebanon, but in the northern coast of Eretz Yisrael, up in Sor, they don't know what to do with the fish. And they wind up teaching that in order to have kosher fish, you have to shecht it. Maybe I should just make sure that, just in case there's a misunderstanding here, fish don't require shlita, for the record. Uh, you just you can actually eat a live one. The most you bring down, don't do it because it's not the way of a refined Jew. But technically, halakhically, you don't need a formal slaughter. Uh, elsewhere, they um, it, once they gave the son of a... Uh, the father was Jewish and the mother was not Jewish and they gave the kid a bris mila on Shabbos. That's a big mistake. The kid's not Jewish, they don't get a mila and certainly in that case, mila is not going to override Shabbos. They were machal Shabbos to do so. And it's during this period that, the, um, that one of the two major collections of the Gemara is quite hastily developed in Bavaria. And that, of course, is what's called the Talmuda de Marava, is the Aramaic expression for it, the Talmuda de Marava, but you all know of it as the, the Yushalmi. Yushalmi, sometimes, sometimes the Jerusalem Talmud, weirdly sometimes translated as the Palestine Talmud. That's interesting. Having nothing to do with the people who today call themselves Palestinians, which we've already talked about. Oh, so I'm going to give all that now. Okay, we're going to talk about the Yushalmi now. No, 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 no. We are now, we're now in the early 200s. Constantine is another century away. 
He's coming. Well, I, you know, I'm giving you, I, I think I'm giving you the main bits. If there's something I've neglected here, please bring it to my attention and I'll, I'll either disagree with you or I'll incorporate it into my notes. But I think these are the major things a person needs to know to be Jewish. So the Yushalmi is the next major project, and here it is. It's spearheaded, of course, by none other than Rabbi Yochanan Nafta himself and his Chabura, his whole entourage. And we're going to meet, he had, he and Reish Lakish are not alone. There are, there are great names in, in his group, in his, in, in his Masifsa. They organized for the Yushalmi only five of the six orders of the Talmud. They never complete Seder Taharos, except they do manage the Yushalmi has the first three chapters of Nida. The rest of Taharos, there's no Yerushalmi on. They get five <laughs> orders, not six. And, to add to the problems, the original manuscripts of the entire Seder Kodshim were all lost. That's a famous story. I'm going to mention the story now briefly. Uh, one was rediscovered at the end of the 19th century, which is pretty amazing. And even though it turned out to be a forgery, I'd like to meet the guy who forged it. Because, you know, if you pull that off, you'd be able to forge an entire Yushalmi Talmud that was maybe semi-plausible. With one mistake, I thought. Yeah, right. So a great figure named Mirdan Plotsky was involved, the Klichemda. Uh, in the early 20th century, they finally exposed the whole forgery. Uh, the, the, um, our host, the Or Sameach, or Mer Simchadvinsk, was involved in the uncovering un, 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 uh, of the forgery. Um, by the way, for the record, the Babylonian Talmud also is not complete. The Bavli is not complete. There are 61 Mesechtas in all of Shas. Right? The six orders can be subdivided into 61. And of the 61, there are only how many Bavli Mesechtas? We've said this before. It's a, it's a magic number. 36. Right? It's one of the four areas of 36. Lamed Vavnikim and the 36 candles of Hanukkah. 36 hours of uh, the first day of the first Shabbos until the, or, or the great light was, was hidden away. It is completed, and here we're not quite clear. The, the dates at this phase in history are still semi-blurry. Um, it's something like 200 to 300 years after Chorban Beis Mikdash, which would mean it's somewhere around, let's say, the late 200s, early 300s, give or take. And how many Mesechites does the Yerushalmi have? I think I was so careful to get all these numbers, and I don't have that one. It has all of the Zerah. It does. It does. It does have it, right. It is big on Zerah because that's the most relevant. And of course, you'd expect from the Yerushalmi, which emphasizes the laws of Eretz Israel, certainly to have a, a, a very in-depth um, analysis of the agricultural laws, the mitzvahs of Pliyos Ba'aretz, which of course are very relevant to Eretz Israel, and indeed. Um, they have Zroim in the Yushalmi, which they generally don't have in the Bavli, with the exception of Brachos. Brachos is it, we have a Bavli Brachos, but none of the other Mesechtas have a Gemara, but in the Yushalmi we do have a Gemara. And then they have Skarlin, which the Bavli Also true, good good for you, exactly. They have, they, there's there's Skarlin in the Yushalmi. The um, final edition, even though the basis is Rabbi Yochanan and his Chaburah, his Chabura, but the final edition are completed more or less by students of Rabbi Yochanan, Rav Asi, Rav Ami, Rav Nachman, Rav Sheshis, it was written in a dialect that's called Sursis, which was spoken um, originally in Syria. That was the Aramaic in Eretz Yisrael. Have you ever pulled out a Yerushalmi? Do so. Trust me. Take take out a Yerushalmi and look at it. And you'll notice, it's a, I mean, if your Aramaic's not good, it won't help, I guess. But if you have some Aramaic, because you've learned some Bavli, you'll notice it's a, it's a different dialect. Some overlap, but a lot of really different ways of phrasing things. It's the Sursis dialect of Aramaic. 
So that's why people who are well conversant with the Bavli sometimes get lost in the Yushalmi because it's a slightly different way of speaking. Here's a beautiful bit from the Medrash, well as Rabbah. Um, the Yushalmi is described as or, as light. The Bavli is described as choshech, darkness. Exile is darkness. Being in the, 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 the palace of the creator of the world is, of course, light. Um, and the Sanhedrin has this great observation. In, um, in the uh, Bavli, the figure of speech that we have for a very common term that you find in the Gemara, when they ask a question, they'll say, when they bring a bryce, they'll say, Tashma. You ever that expression before? Tashma. Come here. Come here. Why? Because in the Bavli, you're in darkness. The best you can hope for for a sensory experience is audio. Come here. The parallel expression in the Yushalmi, used exactly the same way when you're trying to explore a question, is Tachazi. Come see. Because in the Yushalmi, they had lights. So that's one, let's say, uh, simple difference between the two. The former, the... the um, the Bavli has, excuse me, the, the Yushalmi, we just said, has much more about the agricultural laws. And we also have, a, the, there is a tradition that says that in the end of days, when Mashiach comes, we'll be, even, we, we'll be learning the Yushalmi nowadays, and really for the last 2,000 years almost. Um, so we've been learning the Bavli. It's been dominant because it's a Gullus-oriented uh, Gemara that caters to our lives as they presently are. The Yushalmi is much more focused on future days, on, and of course when we're all back in Eretz Yisrael. Um, and Rav Shurigaon says, finally, the Bavli of the two is by far the more complete of the Talmuds. That's why the Bavli is accepted by all of Klal Yisrael. The Yushalmi is not, and that's why it depends. I, I, I don't want to give an absolute principle because there are exceptions to this rule, but often when there's a discussion in the Yushalmi and, another, and maybe a conflicting discussion in the Bavli, the Bavli trumps. Partly because we have this principle, Hilchas HaKibasrai, the Halacha follows the latter one, and the Bavli knew everything that the Yerushalmi knew, and more. It's a midget standing on the shoulders of giants, so the Bavli is more, more authoritative. But not just because of that. It's, it's also because um, it was continued, the Yerushalmi was unpolished, completed hastily because of the persecution in Eretz Yisrael, and the Bavli, they really polished and got down to a as best they could to an, an ex, a more precise science um, and because it was much more thoroughly edited. It was much more poured over. Many more minds went over the, the Bavli. There was a greater, we'll see at the end of the Bavli what, what Ravashi and Ravina will do in convening a massive convention of rabbis from all around the world to finally fine-tune and, and, and really really get it down with precision. And so that that's really explains why we are Bavli-oriented, at least in these days. Finally, at the end of their lives, in their old age, Rabbi Yochanan and Lakish are, the Gemara describes, the Yushalmi tells us that they're inseparable, they learn together, and um, we know that Rabbi Yochanan wouldn't say shir without Rish Lakish to, uh, to follow up, to give feedback. And the Gemara that we started yesterday finishes off on the most tragic note, and it's intriguing, and I'm going to suggest one shot, but it's not the only shot. I'll, I'll, I'll say as a disqualifier. They um, have an argument, and it seems so technical. It doesn't seem like, well, yeah, what's the big deal? Where's the argument? They, they, they're talking about the tuma, the relative tuma and tara of different kinds of instruments used for uh, fighting, for war, for different kinds of uh, swords and knives and lances and such. And Rabbi Yochanan presents the view that um, 
that these objects are makabal tuma, they become susceptible to tuma, which you have to know. Tuma is something that comes, what we call as impurity, happens to an object when the object's complete. Before it's complete, it's not a real object, so it, there's no problem with tuma. So he says, when is an object complete? He says, when it comes out, when it, when it comes out of the fire. Rishlokis disagrees. He said, no, the object is only complete later, at a slightly later phase, not when it comes out of the kiln, but rather when you polish it, when you stick it in the water. This is the way I describe it. You always have the effect, right? When it comes out of the water, why? Because only after that will it shine. And they debate it. And Rachel Lucky's defense his position. He says, people who use these objects don't ever want to use the object. Most people carrying swords don't use the sword actively. They brandish the sword. They use it to threaten people. So you want the sword to shine, to give up that, that threatening gleam. And that's really the Gemar Malacha. That's the completion of the object. But the argument doesn't end there. And they go at it. And um, Rabbi Yochanan seems to malign Rish Lucky as a person. He says, Listis Blistiusa, Yada. He says, a, um, a, 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 a thief. A thug, a mafioso, I guess he knows his business, doesn't he? Whoa! How could he say that? All the Mepharshim asked about this. You're not a balshuva, a convert. You're never allowed to remind them of their roots. You remember Reish Lakish's roots. He came from, and he came from good stock, but he went off the derech and he became the uh, chief bandit of his days. And he came back. And what is Rabbi Yochanan suddenly getting low and personal over, over this? And, and, and he's making a point. He's saying you're drawing from your past. You know, you were a bandit, but you know, you I guess take, takes one to know one. Reish Lakish, Reish Lakish stands for Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. So Reish Lakish then has seemingly another shocking answer, in which he says, he says, what do you mean? He says. What, what do you think you benefited me? He says, here you call me Rav, but back there I was also called Rav. Which is also can't mean what it sounds like. <laughs> it sounds like a pure Gaivitic statement, but there's no arrogance in Reish Lucky. So what does he mean by that? And then Reish Lucky, Rabbi Yochanan has his own confounded answer, and he says, he says uh, I'm paraphrasing the Gemara, but he, he says, what do you mean what did I do? I brought you into the wings of the Shekhinah itself. They each retire... And the machlokis is so intense that they become physically ill from the machlokis. And based on the Lush of the Gemara, it seems that Reish Lakish's illness is even greater. And Reish Lakish's wife, who is she again? The sister, uh, the sister of Rabbi Yochanan, comes to Rabbi Yochanan to beg him to reconcile. And Rabbi Yochanan doesn't take it seriously. <coughs> he responds with Psukim from Yirmiyahu. This <coughs> is not a problem. And Rishlokis dies. Call it the killer machlokis. Rishlokis dies of a machlokis. And <coughs> then Rabbi Yochanan is deeply, deeply, deeply remorseful. And he... Um, a quick, a quick, quick uh, pause in the story. Elsewhere, Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer tells a story. When Rishlokis dies... He goes to what's called the Otsar Achaim, the treasury of life. And around the same time, two of his former um, thug colleagues also died. And they see Reish Lakish in the preferred area of the Otsar Achaim. And they say to Kaddish Baruch Hu, oh, he's there, he's our friend. 
we should be with him. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu, um, says, well, he made tshuva. He became a gavra rabba. He became a great man. You didn't. So the friend said, oh, well, okay. How do we make tshuva? So Kaddish Baruch Hu tells them, he says, ain't tshuva ela admisa. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You can make tshuva, but there's a deadline. It's death. Once you leave Olam Hazet, there's no tshuva anymore. Too late. Um, in the Gemara in Tainis, Reish Lakish leaves a son, an orphan son behind. And he's a precocious child who can um, do an interesting trick. He says, any pasuk that you um, can find meaning in, in all of Nach, in all of Navim Ksuvim, has an antecedent in the Torah itself. has a parallel, similar uh, story in the Torah itself. And Rabbi Yochanan finds his nephew, Reish Lakish's son, and he, he, he drills him, he tests him, and indeed the child passed the test. And um, suddenly the child's mother comes and scurries him away, and she says, you come away from him. He might do to you what he did to his father, to your father. His sister. That's the sister, who now, you know, is the widow. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan is bereft. And he's bereft because he misses his chavrusa. His and we said when they learned that the end result, 1 plus 1 equals 3, learning grew. And um, he's inconsolable. And the rabbis, of course, are deeply concerned. What are we going to do with the Gadol Ador, who's, who, who's not functioning well? And so they decide to send him, send in another Gadol, Rabbi Lazar ben Bidas himself, to learn with Rabbi Yochanan, to console him and to make up for the loss of Reish Lakish. And Rabbi Yochanan starts to learn. And every idea he says, Rabbi Lazar proceeds to bring a support text. And Rabbi Yochanan looks at him and he says, you think I need your support text? That's all you have to bring me? I'm going to paraphrase. You're a yes man? You're telling me, I'm telling you this idea and you're telling me a support text? When I used to bring these, when I used to bring learning down to Reish Lakish, he would ask kashas. He would give it to me. He'd let me have it left and right. And I have to respond and debate him. And sometimes he was right and I was wrong. And we'd go out it. And as every, every 24 questions I would ask, he would respond with 24 kashas. He said, and from there, true learning flourished. It's the dialectic. It's the interplay, the intellectual back and forth in the base medrash. That's what makes learning come alive. If you're just learning alone, you're not learning. He said, where are you? Reish Lakish. And he starts screaming, where are you, Reish Lakish? And he starts going out of his mind. And they daven for him that he should die. And he dies. Also, a broken heart of Machlokis. When Rabbi Yochanan dies, the Gemara uh, in uh, tells us, the smoke that had been rising above the tomb of Elisha ben Abuya, Acher, uh, indicated that he was uh, burning uh, down in, in, in Gehenna, ceased to rise, indicating that Rabbi Yochanan had such a strength of character that he was able to take um, Acher to Olam Haba, to his merits. Um, all of these require lots of analysis. I'm going to suggest one shot on the story. What really happened between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish? So this is in one of the uh, commentaries in the Ein Yaakov. It says like this. What was the argument really over? It wasn't just over a bunch of, you know, tumant, even though it's a big machlokis, but tumantara of, of vessels. What, they, what were they really saying? Reish Lakish indeed was drawing from his past. 
We're saying, yeah, Torah is a living, breathing Torah. It's part of this world. It's part of our lives. And if we're talking about something that's used by bandits, well, I, I know about that, and I'm going to bring it into discussion. I am going to, in fact, bring in my own svara, my own, my own ideas. That's part of the fray. That's part of the discussion. And Rabbi Yochanan was part of the Chazal tradition of being concerned. You're bringing in extraneous ideas. You're bringing in things from the outside. But we're in the project of trying to preserve the Torah, not add to the Torah. He says, you're a listus. You're bringing in your listus. That's what you know, but you don't know. You're not coming from the tradition of Torah. I've received from Rebbe Yudanosi himself, and he received it from his Rebbe's, the holy tradition, and that's what we're trying to preserve. And based on that, that's how I've defined the Gemara Malachim. And Rish Lakis didn't understand what he was saying, and he thought that he was denying his whole past. He was saying, if you tell me as a Baal Shuvah, I've got to completely reject my roots and tell me that none of my past has any significance whatsoever, then, then what, what, what am I? I'm nothing. I'm, a, I'm an empty vessel. But I have legitimate things that I can bring with me from my former life that can enrich the discussion. And Rabbi Yochanan doesn't understand his response either. They, 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 miss, they miss each other on all of these on, on, on all of these points, and he says, but I brought you under the wings of the Shekhinah, which is all that matters in life. In the end, in the end they, they, they misunderstand what they're doing, and it seems, by the end of the story, that Rabbi Yochanan comes around. Even though he's the ultimate tr- um, defender of tradition, that the Rish Lakish point of view, that you're, you can bring in, as long as you're very careful not to tamper with tradition, but to draw from your worldly experience, to bring in other dimensions to the discussion, and to bring kashis from that, through that, that's where learning really flourishes, opens up, and, and a greater dialectic is formed. And you can go, uh, that's, just, that's just one possible shot there, but uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, isn't that the whole purpose of, of having the oral Torah as being oral, is that it is supposed to grow and adapt like that? But, but this is the dangerous area. They're both right. And it's obviously a very fine-tuned balance that only Gidole Torah can really uh, get that balance just right. Because if you go too much to the Reish Lakish camp, camp, then Chas Vasholo, but then you dilute it with all kinds of modern ideas, and that's not the spirit of Torah. We're preserving a tradition. But if you're totally rigid and closed to any innovation, then you're just simply a yes-man. And Rabbi Yochanan says, I don't need yes-men. I need people to ask me kashas. I need to understand. I need to get emes. Ultimate emes is, cut, is brought through human inquiry. And I need, I need freedom of expression, freedom of, of, of thought to be able to do that. When Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish die, the next Gadol Hador is Rabbi Lazar ben Pedas. And he is Stam Rabbi Lazar. He's also one of the most mentioned names in all the Gemara. And even though that story doesn't reflect well on him so, so much, other stories show that he was, he was an immense, towering figure. Uh, he was only Gadol briefly. He died soon after himself. But he is mentioned very frequently in some of my... And we'll, we'll conclude today with, with um, talking about some of his Torah that he leaves us uh, in the in the in the Bavli and the Yerushalmi in the Yerushalmi, uh, we learn from Rabbi Lazar a pretty famous bit. He says that three things nullify a harsh decree. Right, tefillah, tzedakah, and shuva all get rid of the divine decree. These are statements that we make in our davening on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, prayer and giving uh, our meiser, giving our tithes of our money and returning, making tshuva. Uh, these have ways of, even if a Kaddish Baruch Hu has made a decree on the world, we can turn things around, teaches Rabbi Lazar ben Pedas. Um, he defines dveikus. How do we cling to Hashem? We can't exactly. Clinging is a very physical concept. Uh, Hashem is entirely abstract and beyond us. So he defines it. In the Gemara in Ksubos, he says, one who marries his daughter to, a Talmud Chacham, one who does business with, a Talmud Chacham, or one who gives money to Talmud Chachamim. 
by doing so, being involved with Talmud Chachamim, you're clinging to them and thereby clinging to the Shechina itself. And that is a full kiyum of the Mitzvah Deiraisa. The Gemara Brachos takes this idea one step further, of course. How can you achieve even better than Vekas? Be that Talmud Chacham. Logically enough, right? So, so, but, but he teaches us the principle of, of clinging to Hashem is to cling to his wise men who understand his ways. Um, in Yavamos, he teaches, he defines the term Adam uh, was two beings in one and Hashem created Chava, Isha, from him. He created her as an Ezer Kinegdo, as a helpmate corresponding. Well, Rabbi Lazar defines that. What does it mean, Ezer Kinegdo? Zoha, if he merits Ozarto, then she indeed helps him. Lo Zacha, if he doesn't merit, Kinegdo, she's against him. Very famous word, very important. You'll hear it at Sheba Brachos, if you haven't heard this one before. The, uh, in Gemara Giti, and Rabbi Lazar teaches us that, uh, also about marriage, when one divorces his first wife, famous end of the Gemara, the Mizbeach Shomala, the, the heavenly altar itself, sheds tears. It's such a tragedy. It's a cosmic proportions. A person, people get divorced. It happens. Sometimes you have no alternative. Divorce is a category of life, but doesn't mean it's less of a tragedy. Listen to this, this gorgeous, uh, these, these, these uh, insights the Vilnagon teaches. Um, never once in the entire Torah will you see the combination of the letters Gimel and Tes together. Get, which is what, is what makes a divorce. You'll never find those two letters in combination. All of the letters are combined, but not Gimel and Tes. Um, that's why when the Torah itself refers to this document, the Bill of Divorce, it refers to it obliquely as, an, as some kind of vague safer crisis, a book that cuts the marriage, but it doesn't actually call it a get. In fact, the letters themselves, Gimel and Tess, you can count them if you'd like, are the least of the, they're the two least used letters in the entire Torah. In Ksuvos, the Rebbe Lazar enlightens us about different parts of our body and why they're shaped. Do you know what you're about to say? You didn't know. You didn't realize what you just did. He, cre- you know, he created these doohickeys. They call them thumbs, beautifully shaped for the following. Fits snugly in here in case somebody starts speaking lashon hara. Just insert, insert here. There's, they come with an arrow and instructions. Insert an earlobe. He also says he says another reason why the earlobes are created otherwise useless dangling bits of skin that can fold ever so snugly right inside when they start speaking lashon hara. Um, a little bit. Not as, okay, it's not perfect. Not, not, not hermetic, but pretty good. Um, yeah, it, it's also, if people know this Gemara, it's a pretty famous Gemara. Um, it's one way of conveying to them that it is, they're saying Lashon Hara. In the Gemara Baba, Baba Metziah, um, Rabbi Elazar teaches us in Money Matters that Onus Dvarim uh, is worse than Onus Mamun. Onus Mamun is a Torah prohibition about cheating people, overcharging a market price of whatever the going market rate is. Um, but Onus Dvarim, which is cheating people in words, oppressing people, anybody, that's a big issue. You should know this in Isidurisa. People violate it every day and don't realize it. Anything you say or do that might make another Jew feel bad is an Isidurisa. Watch. Look at me for a second. This is, the following is an Isidurisa. I just, roll, I just rolled my eyes. Right? If somebody says something stupid and you roll your eyes and they see you doing that and, and it makes them feel bad, you've insulted them, you've offended them, that's an Isidurisa. You can't do that. And he says, he, he points out that onus dvarim, making somebody feel bad, afflicting somebody with your words, is worse than cheating them with the money because it gets at the body. It makes a person ill. The money, they can be replaced. The, the, the damage that's done to the neshama is, is sometimes permanent. He says, oh, 
Oh, I love this. This is fantastic. These are words to live by. You have to, you have to memorize all these ideas. And the Gemara and Chuli Lazar teaches the world exists all because of one person. Who's that? He's somebody who refrains himself from quarreling. That's so hard to do, no? Especially when you're in the middle of an argument and it's ego thing and you have to say just to show that you're right and especially if you are right. And he says, the world exists if you pull, pull back and don't, don't continue the machlokas. And obviously talking about a machlokas that serves no purpose. No, nothing, nothing good is going to come out of this. Then you've justified the existence of the world. And in Makos, in our Gemara coming around the corner in the beginning of the second chapter, Rabbi Lazar uh, teaches, Biderech, and I've been quoting this all year, the way that a person wants to go, that's how a Kaddish Baruch conducts you. You want to go to sin? Hey, they'll take you there. That's your destination in life. You've got all kinds of dreams and aspirations. You want to go do a bunch of sins and stuff? He'll pave the way. You can do that. You want to do some mitzvahs? He'll help you with that too. Right? But there, and, and you'll trust me, get these words down, memorize this line. The way a person wants to go, Kajbar will take you there. Just got to make sure you define where you want to go to uh, carefully and wisely. Um, tomorrow we're going to talk about the Roman Empire as it, as it breaks in half.